Welcome to Yeah The Gals podcast, where I, Loz McGlynn, chat with epic everyday women who have paved their way to success in their space. We hope you feel inspired, motivated, and ready to listen to some honest and open conversations. Because gals, you bloody got these. Welcome back to part two of my chat with the wonderful Rach and Sarah as we continue the discussion of important topics around neurodiversity. As we jump into the second half, Rach and Sarah first discuss the very raw emotions that parents can experience when exploring neurodiversity. These beautiful gals then talk through the exploration of their own diagnosis, the process, their emotions and what it has meant for them today. Both with different stories, I cannot say how privileged it was for me to sit and listen to their points of view, as well as ask a few reflective questions in the moment. Particularly for my wonderful sister-in-law, Rach, it is the first time that she has shared some of this. Actually, it is literally the first time she's shared it at all. So thank you so much, Rach, for being super honest and so bloody brave. After listening to them both speak, you will see that they have so much love and passion for this space. And we hope that from whatever experience or circumstance that you're in, you feel comfort and understanding in what they so openly share. But the other thing that can stop people is that it's all too hard emotionally. Oh, yeah. So from a parent perspective, emotionally, that can be a really hard thing to accept. Mm. Yeah. Sarah, I know personally you've explored it with your own children, if, if you're okay to yeah, talk, talk about that. What are some of the things both professionally and personally that you have seen people experience going through this process? Yeah, it is difficult because of the societal impression of autism and what that means. You want your child to just be healthy and happy and you mm-hmm. don't want them to have to go through anything or have difficulties in any area. So thinking about that in the moment and into the long term is really difficult. Initially, when someone has said to you, if the preschool's pulled you aside and said, oh, I think something's going on here, that's when it starts and it doesn't finish. And I guess the mm. everyone worries about their kids. Mm. Everybody but, wants a world for their child that is not challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody has a child and goes, yeah, I hope some challenges get thrown their way. Absolutely. absolutely. And this is why I am so passionate about early intervention and early, not early intervention, early diagnosis, because if I can get in with families at this point in time and explain a diagnosis doesn't mean anything at all. We are placing no limitations on your child whatsoever. We might need to look at how we can do things differently, but there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. And I guess the emotions of it do come from the unknown, but Also from the known, like for me, when I started to have kids, I had worked in government disability services for a long time and we saw the most complex people. Sarah and I worked with, I suppose, what would have traditionally been called the most severe. Yeah. And we saw where the system had catastrophically failed Failed children and adults. And so we Mm. saw what that life did sometimes look like for people. Yeah. And that's... And that, that's scary, scary as well. But exactly as you said, Loz, like the, even I worked 
under NDIS when my son was diagnosed and it was hard enough when I understood the process Mm -hmm. and understood how it worked. So there's the emotions around, oh gosh, my child's going to have something hard in their life. There's the emotions about, oh my goodness, this is taking so much time and cost and energy away from what I was doing. There's the worry about the long term, but there's also the worry about stigma and what's my family going to say? What is everyone around me going to say? And a label can be empowering and it can also be extremely absolutely. hard yeah. for people. Yeah, that's the crucial sort of point, I suppose, because when that is all happening is probably the trough of parental mental health, which is not a mm. great combination. So those early years and that early period diagnosis can be devastating for a parent's well-being. And I mean, hard. the spectrum of emotions. I'm not a parent myself, so this would be my observations outwards looking inwards. It is a very different experience for every parent. Denial is actually not even denial, but just not wanting to acknowledge is usually a pretty common first Mm. emotional first experience because putting a name or saying it out loud or seeing it in writing makes it real. And that means you then have to face it. Yeah, The overwhelm in every sense of the word cannot be understated. There's fear for your child's future. Fear if you as a parent are going to be able to meet their needs. There's guilt. I'm not saying that's logical, but guilt is a very overwhelmingly common experience by parents. Did I somehow do something wrong during my pregnancy? Did I miss out on something earlier and didn't pick this up? Guilt, (laughs) I'm not a good enough parent to be there for my child to do this. There's fear about the future. Fear about commitment. Fear about committing to this. There's this grief. And that's something that we don't probably talk about enough is grief is an ongoing process. And that grief is about, because obviously we're very passionate about accepting the person who they are, but the truth is most people will experience grief because when they have a baby, they have a vision of what that child's life may look like. There is a grieving of that life that I thought they were going to have is going to be different. And many people, we would say it's we don't think that it's a loss and we don't think that it's due. But the truth is that's the experience that people have. Of well, that's a sense the of first feeling, yeah. Or a sense of grief of, oh, neurotypical people think that happiness looks like a house, three kids, a husband or a wife. Lots a job, of friends. Lots of friends. <laughs> happiness is whatever that person finds yeah. that makes them happy. But very overwhelmingly parents will experience things like my child can't be happy if they don't go on to get married and have kids or have a job or be financially independent in the sense that we would expect that. There's a lot of grief. There's a lot of anxiety. A lot of feeling. There can be anger at the failures in the system and the wait time. Like it's incredibly frustrating. Your child needs help. Why are these things taking so long? Why is this so unacceptable? As a parent, there can be a lot of grief in the sense that if your child has quite high support needs, your life is going to change. Yeah. The typical person in the family unit that has to change their life is the mother. Yeah. It is typically mum that has to cut back her work or change her job or change her life. And so often a mother is experiencing grief and loss for their own vision of what their career looked like. And their that, identity. Their identity. Yeah. And those aren't fair. No. But that's the current state of, of yeah. play. And Sarah, can I ask... Yeah. Can I ask, thank you, Rach, that was great. Can I ask how that felt for you as a mother in those moments with yeah. your son? Um, I've reflected on this quite a lot, actually. It was difficult. Like, you can know, but then you know. 
<laughs> you know, no. So as Rach said, to have it written down on a piece of paper, even me who knew that he's the most beautiful mm. little kid and he's so smart and he's so, so funny. He is beautiful. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, ah, okay, this is happening now because you are in limbo until you do get the diagnosis and then things just go phew. How old was he when he had the diagnosis? He was four. So I was trying for a couple of years before mm. that. It took a while to find someone who would actually take me seriously. But it is, it's a grief, but that doesn't mean like people think grief as in, oh, that Someone's means I don't like this person. Because grief is grief of what you were not even expecting because no one expects anything when they have a child. Like you don't know. You're not guaranteed anything in life that they're going to be healthy or happy or typically developing. But it's so socially ingrained in us and especially being raised, I think millennials and the older Gen Zs are really in a point where there's a massive generational shift. We were raised exactly as Rach said. We do this, we go to school, we finish it, we go to uni, we get a job and there was expectations (coughs) on our behaviour and Mm. that we just respected our elders and we just followed the rules because... They were the rules. Whereas now we're looking into, and especially post-COVID, like that sort of changed the mental health scape a lot. Mm. Um, We're sort of looking now towards, you know, well, why? Like, why do I have to do that? Why do I have to do it that way? Why is that the gold star? But the way that we are raised and everyone has trauma, whether whether it's a big, obvious life trauma or whether it's a an accumulation of your relationships with other people or things that happened to you in childhood, we are all shaped by our existence. And so our views on our kids are shaped by that. So there's a a concept getting around in the neurodivergent affirming space, which is, I love it. It's called radical acceptance. So radical acceptance is a game changer for neurodivergent kids and their parents because I'm not a psychologist so I don't know the ins and outs of it but I guess the nitty-gritty of it is that you are not going to change what's happening by worrying about it and that's a hard thing to come to but once you do tip over into that oh my god who cares if he's having more than two hours of screen time a day he's happy and regulated and learning who cares if he doesn't play a sport on the weekend it's very overwhelming he doesn't like wet grass it's about really nailing down what your values are as a family and what hills you're willing to die on to support your kids and make sure that they develop into the person that you want them to be as a person, not what they do. And that they're happy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Radical acceptance that their happiness is going to look different to what your happiness might be. Yeah. And that's fine. But you could say that about everybody. A hundred percent. Radical acceptance is Bigger than disability. Great concept in all areas. And it's all circling back to exactly the passion point and the things that you guys want to get across is nobody looks the same and that's Mm -hmm. okay. Absolutely. And I think radical acceptance, it speaks to me quite particularly in my Mm -hmm. experiences, I think as well. Something that a diagnosis of autism has really helped me in terms of radical acceptance of who I am. Which is a great segue. I might start with Sarah just First. Sure. But Sarah, segueing from your son's diagnosis, is that when you started to explore your own? Yes and no. Ever since I was at uni, I've always been drawn to autism. I did my final placement, no, sorry, my final project on autism. You did projects? <laughs> yeah, I did uni work. Yeah. And like 
when I was working at the government disability service, there was a lot of people with a lot of really complex behaviours that many people couldn't work out why they were doing certain things. And I was like, it's because of that. Is that not obvious? And obviously then I didn't know. <laughs> but Obvious over, to us, obvious but not to obvious us. to others. Um, yeah. But over the years I've had moments like that where people are like, where did that thought come from? And I couldn't mm-hmm. say where. So over the years and reflecting on my childhood and, and adolescence in particular, going to an all-girls school, which was fun, the differences were starting to add up. And I was like, maybe, but there's such a massive mind shift and tipping point that you get to where you're like, it's called imposter syndrome. So yeah, the imposter syndrome was strong, even in myself where I knew or was confident to an extent that I was neurodivergent in some way. It's like they might laugh at me or they might not want to assess me or, and that did happen a couple of times. But yeah, the real tipping point for me was when my little boy was getting older and we were getting to a point where I wanted to start talking to him about his brain and how it works and how it's different to other people and why we do certain things. And I really wanted him to not feel like he was on his own. And I guess for my clients too, it's so powerful to have someone who just gets it. And I know that very well myself. Like the most game-changing thing for me has been immersing myself in the autistic community and making friends online or in person with other people who are exactly the same as me and I don't have to pretend yep. around. So, Do you find that empowering? Very much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's both empowering and depressing at the same time yep. because you realise how much energy you are spending on being someone who you think people are going to like in other social situations. I think that's situations. why our friendship has always worked so well. Yeah. We didn't know. No. But at the same time, we've had a friendship. It's almost from like the moment we met yeah. each other. I could just say what I thought and you would go, okay. Yeah. And if we didn't agree with things, it didn't matter. But there was no pretense. Mm. Hey, you want to go out this weekend? No, I'm just not really feeling up for it. Okay. Or, hey, I know we made plans, <laughs> but I'm just not really up for it today. Okay. Yeah. There's no second guessing. There's yeah. no agenda. There's no Sarah says what she means and I say what I mean and we don't care about each other's. There's no confusion. There's no, confusion. <laughs> There's no second thought. Yeah. Like if you ask me if I want to do something and I don't want to do it, I'll tell Sarah I don't want to do it. Yeah. Or, but that's not because you're annoyed at yeah. her for something that she did no. at 2 o'clock that afternoon. No. You're like, and no, if, I just don't And if Sarah to. says in a text message something, I'm not going to be thinking, but did she really mean this or what the heck did she mean by that? Because what she meant was what the words say. Yes. And <laughs> that's not a wa- bad way to live. No, no it's but quite it, refreshing. But it, I probably didn't realise at the time, but like just what you see is what you get. We both find the same things funny. Yeah. We always share the same passions and the same, why doesn't everyone else find this so damn hard? It's yeah. so flipping so obvious. <laughs> and um, so, sorry to cut you off, Rachel, because I yeah. do want to come over to you, but Sarah, did you go on to get an like an official diagnosis? Did yes. you go for that? Yeah. Yeah, I did. So I first mentioned it off the cuff to my son's psychologist just to gauge her reaction to it. And it was like, understandably, they didn't think that I was. But I... Is that because you look too normal, Sarah? <laughs> yeah. I wasn't doing the autism on that day. You can't be autistic. You're married <laughs> with children. We have a very good relationship and still do. We work very closely together. So I was like, yeah, no, I really want to. And as we went through the assessment, they were like, oh, okay. And part of an adult autism assessment is a masking questionnaire. So masking is a trauma response whereby you just 
fit in, social chameleon type. It's not even always conscious. It's just that you mirror the people around you as a protective response. So my masking quotient was one of the highest, like almost the top score cap. So mine out of the whole thing was 168. And a typical quotient for an autistic woman is 115 to 120. And for a neurotypical person is 75. Wow. So the amount of energy that gets put into that, and even if it's not conscious, it takes a lot of energy. Wow. So yeah, I, I had the psychology assessment first, which involved a couple of interviews. My mum was interviewed based on my childhood and filling out some forms and questionnaires. Was that with a different psychologist to your sons? Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. And in the process, they also identified that there was ADHD going on as well, which I didn't see coming because my understanding of ADHD was not where it is now. But yeah, and then I wasn't really going to do much with the formal autism diagnosis, but because the ADHD was identified, I ended up going to a psychiatrist and pursuing medication, which is probably the most game-changing thing I've ever done. (laughs) What has that been like for you now? Oh, it's hard. It's nice because it's like putting on glasses when you didn't know you couldn't see. Things are so much easier than they were. It was like waiting through quicksand before to do the same things and now I can just do them. Yeah, so that is well worthwhile. Yeah. But then there's the processing because I was the person who had to do five things at a time while I was studying for the HSC. I was playing solitaire. I was listening to music. I was studying. I was writing something down. I was something. Sound familiar, right? (laughs) Yeah. Very very familiar. Um, And that was painful. That was hard. And then into uni, I was the person doing the assignments and submitting them at 11.58 when they were due at 11.59 because I literally couldn't function unless I was in full panic mode. And I guess the really big difference was when I had kids. And that's when a lot of women in particular seem to get identified as having ADHD or misdiagnosed as being depressed or anxious. Do you think that ADHD, because my understanding is that it is predominantly in men, but the more time goes on, the more I think the conversations are having, and even with some of my colleagues here, that ADHD is actually just as prevalent in women. It's just that we are told that... We're neurotic. Yeah. We're anxious, we're depressed. Here, take this any yeah. <laughs> antidepressant and go away. Yeah. Yeah, it's... The understanding of ADHD has come a long way, <clears throat> particularly in the last 10 years, well, in the last few years even. And so are you finding that, I mean, yourself and Rach yourself as well, that a lot of females are being diagnosed as adults with ADHD? 100%. Yes. Yep. Yeah, a lot. Huge. Um, and it's good because I still see people and I've got a lot of adult clients who have late autism diagnoses and ADHD diagnoses who have just been told they have treatment-resistant depression. Wow. <sighs> Yeah. What they were experiencing was not consistent with treatment resistant depression. It was it wasn't the chronic low mood. It was just the periods of what we know mm. now is burnout. Yeah. And I'll ask one more thing before I throw over to you, Rach. But would you say that who you see for this support in your adult life is paramount to Yes. Yeah. And that can be really hard. Absolutely. A lot of people, especially as I am immersed in the neurodivergent communities, like online and in person, but a lot of people struggle to get someone who understands ADHD in women and autism and both. (laughs) What would your advice be to somebody who is going through the motions at the moment? There's a lot of online questionnaires that you can fill out and 
there's some which are better than others, but my recommendation is to do as many of those as you can and write down what really sticks out for you every time you do it or even write down the things that you struggle with during the day. Do you become very irritable at the end of the day? Do you get touched out? Do you get overstimulated? What does that look like for you? Write it all down because when you get in front of a professional, when you're already experiencing imposter syndrome and you're probably already anxious and if you do have ADHD, your working memory is probably rubbish. So (laughs) if you have it all written down in front of you, then you feel much more empowered to advocate and that's exactly what I did. When I went for my assessment, I wrote everything down and because I am autistic, I actually put it under the diagnostic criteria. <laughs> did a little pre-work, put that's it all right. together in a plan. Exactly. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I do. Exactly as I said before, when I'm anxious and nervous, anyone who's autistic or neurodivergent, when we're anxious or dysregulated, our communication goes downhill. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so highly Highly recommend. (laughs) Great (laughs) advice. And thank you for sharing your experience, Sarah. Rach, this is huge for us because... The other Big Mac. (laughs) The other Big Mac. You are my sister-in-law. Certainly am. Lucky me. (laughs) Lucky lucky me. And we haven't actually officially spoken about this in depth. I haven't really officially spoken about it in depth with anyone except Sarah. So this is huge for you. (laughs) And so I'm really conscious of that. I want to just start off and trying not to get a little bit emotional myself, but I'm incredibly proud of you for doing this, Rach. No, no, Me too. I do it because I'll tell you why I just decided to talk about my personal experiences today is because I have Jack and Tom and Ellie and I don't know what their future looks like, but should one of them be neurodiverse or a future niece or nephew, how can I help them accept themselves if I don't be open and honest about who I am? Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. Sarah's giving the hurrahs in the background. <laughs> so, Rach, tell me your experience. Sure. I had no idea I was autistic. Copy <laughs> <Stop laughs> <with> me. <laughs> um, <laughs> besties, samesies. Um, the, probably the easiest way to put it is it came as an absolute complete shock and absolutely no surprise at all. <laughs> Can I also just quickly say The little information I did get was a passing conversation going, by the way, guys, think I've got autism. (laughs) Which was, think of, I've been diagnosed. I've been diagnosed. (laughs) Yeah, anyway, I think I'm autistic. What are you doing on the weekend? (laughs) How do you guys feel about that? Cool. All right. What's for dinner? That sounds a lot like you. Yeah. I did my bit. I don't, I'm not, yeah, I don't talk about my, I don't like talking about feelings. So I've always struggled with feeling like I'm different but not wanting anyone to see that I'm different, but then being self-conscious about being different. So I've spent a lot of my life pretending certain things or just always thought of myself as I'm just a bit different, but also secretly think I'm a bit of a widow. Oh gosh, I hope other people don't think that. Do they just pretend to like me or do they, am I annoying? And And I've always just little things where I've just realised I'm different. Like we just talked about my great hatred of birthdays. Yes. And I've always thought, am I just a really mean person for not liking birthdays? I don't know. For me, I've like all through high school, all through uni, I had things that were really challenging for me at uni outside my comfort zone, like really hard moving from high school to university. That was just unexpectedly challenging for me and that change of routine, that change of place and different people have always said to me, like, your brain is different. I've never seen a person who thinks the way you do or works the way you do or can do 500 things at once. But I actually pursued an ADHD diagnosis. That's what I decided to get. It was around the same time that Sarah was talking to Psych and I thought, yep, I've always just known I've had ADHD. 
but I've never really felt the need to do anything with that. It's just like, it was just a piece of information to me. Like I'm pretty sure I've got ADHD. Yeah. But I'd always seen it as in many ways <laughs> like a, a super like an advantage <laughs> to me because I can do so many things at once. But then I guess now I know that's the autism part of me that can then hyper-focus on things and get so many things done. But I actually just decided to pursue an ADHD diagnosis because I was struggling so much with my sleep and with being calm. Like I just was at the point where I can't sit still. I couldn't quiet my brain. I couldn't quiet my body at night, which I don't look like someone who does a lot of movement, but uh, (laughs) I'm continuously on the move. And can I say at Family Affairs, it is a challenge to get a word in between you and your dad and throw (laughs) your brother in there. If you don't mind me speaking from my experience in knowing you for the nearly 10 years that I have, you can see your brain ticking. Like you can see you and you have a lot to say and a lot of great things to say, but it's like you have to say them. Mm. Like it has to come out of your mouth. Yeah. It's like it can't remain inside. Yeah. And that's always something I've been really hyper aware of is that I interrupt people all the time. Yeah. And actually I get embarrassed then about it. And sometimes I'll go in and just say something and they'll be like, I'll actually step back. Oh, sorry, you were talking. Keep talking. Yeah, interesting. It's a weird thing where I just, once the thought occurs, I've just got to say it. And sometimes I do get a little bit embarrassed about interrupting people. Yeah. Um, but is it that you just can't help it? I, just just can't, can't. I, I can't even explain it. It's not like it's impulse It's control. just like the thought's there. It's just got to get out. Yeah. yeah. I've often been conscious of, I hope people don't think I'm not listening to them Mm. or gosh, that's so rude that I interrupted. So for me, like I always kind of knew all that. And sometimes I have to really step back and be like, don't interrupt, Mm. wait, wait. And then you miss out on what other people are saying. But then I, yeah, (laughs) yeah. But I just was hoping to pursue the ADHD diagnosis actually to go down the medication route because I always knew I had ADHD and I thought medication may help me to slow and to calm down and particularly with sleep. I'm really struggling with sleep. You're a night owl. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just can't switch my brain off. Mm-hmm. It just keeps going. But through that, because so many of the things I thought were just different, I've always just thought were just, and to an extent I still do wonder, like where does it become autism and where is it just as a scope of personality traits? Yeah. Uh, do you know what I mean? Like, that was something that in my mind I was like, these are just personality traits and everyone's got their own quirks and their own personality traits. And I wish we had another two hours because yeah. that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But I, when I was talking to the psychologist, so I, I just rang up and made an appointment with a psychologist that specialises in neurodiversity, which includes ADHD. And so I went in and said, oh, I'm here for an assessment of ADHD. And I guess maybe just out of curiosity, I suppose I'm curious, could I be autistic? Probably not though, but just curious what you thought. And then by the end, because I, I was in full mode and by the end of one hour and Sarah actually came with me to talk as someone who knew me she goes I think we should probably just include the autism assessment we should just pop that in there and I was like oh just for funsies and then I didn't have any opposition the psychologist was very clear that yes I think you have autism and I was like oh there you go and I can't say that it was like a to be honest with it wasn't like some big profound life-changing thing I was like that's a piece of information. And then I think a part of him was like, nah, probably not. And then obviously I thought about it and thought a lot more about growing up and different things. And I was like, oh, duh. All right. Of course you, <laughs> yeah. How did you feel emotionally though? Did you go through any sort um, of feelings? No, like it wasn't something that I was upset about or challenged about or anything. It was more like a, that's interesting. I suppose for me, it was not so much in and on myself being like, oh no, I've got autism. It was more of a, I'll just compartmentalize that, that as a piece of information myself not important for anyone else to know. That's just important for me. It's interesting because I still don't see it as something important for people to know about me. And as I said, I'm more interested in supporting 
other people. But then what what stopped you from saying it? Because you don't think it's important or you don't because, want to label? And we've talked about this because I am affected by society's stigmas mm. around those labels, just like the exact stigmas and the exact things that I don't want to fight. I want other people to not have to go through still in my mind. Is ingrained in I you. I don't want people I work with to think, oh, that's, she's just saying that because she's autistic mm. or she's responding that way because she's autistic. Think For me, it's one of those things where I am every bit as much part of my society as everybody else. Yeah, which we are the society that we are in, yeah. so that's completely understandable. Do you think, not? I don't know if this is assumptive, but do you think because you have worked so incredibly hard in the career that you have and the position that you're in, that you don't want people to think you're any less of a professional because you have a label? Is that? Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, it's like I want to be always recognised for the merit of my work. And I don't want there to ever, I don't think there is, but then there's part of me that's like some people don't see things the way that we do. I don't want people to, in my professional space or my private space, to think, that opinion or that thought or that idea is less worthwhile because, oh, that's that's an autistic mm. idea and other people don't think that way. It's very interesting and I hope you don't mind me asking that. And I think it is. Do you mind if I make an observation? Of course you can. Um, there's a concept called internalised ableism. So internalised ableism is, I guess, ableism is similar to like racism or sexism where you make judgments on someone or treat someone differently because of a disability. So having grown up in a in a society where disabilities were stigmatised for such a long time and now we know that the tide is changing and that there's a different way of looking at people and their assets and their their support needs and those sorts of things. I think with you, Rach, it's it's not a conscious decision that you don't want to tell people. It's historical trauma and worry about what are they going to think of me, exactly what you just said. Are they going to change the way they treat me? Exactly. Yeah. Like you said, I didn't go that through that to the same extent because I had processed that prior to my diagnosis, which is why I went for the diagnosis. But when you go, and there's stages of everything, isn't there? Like Mm -hmm. you get the diagnosis and then you go through these stages. But I'm down further really living as an example that neurodivergent affirming lifestyle. If you don't like the way I live or you don't like the way my brain thinks, then, you know, there's the door. (laughs) Literally. <laughs> you being in my life, if you're not going to like me for who I am, is not needed. I started projecting that when I started my business because that's when I did tell people, like on a wide scale, that I was autistic. But really probably the last six to 12 months is when I've actually started living that and just being open and honest about how my brain works <clears throat> and what I need and the difficult part is that some people have treated me differently because of that. The vast majority of people have not. And it would be bringing people within a similar circumstance to you or parents who are going through the motions feel so much more connected to you because of that exact thing. So that's actually amazing. And it's nice because, as I said before, there's the grief of not knowing what is going to happen and because people, like my husband, for example, he had only really come across autistic people who were in the support unit at his school. So that's what he associated autism with. And we had to go through all of that with him. And I think me just being in front of him as an out and proud neurodivergent person and saying, look, this is not all difficult. Like it's different and some of those differences are difficult. 
but it's just a different operating system. Yeah. This is not something that's going to stop you from doing what you want to do. You might just have to do it in a different way, yes. which is fine. Yes. And I think there is still that stigma because people often associate autism with being like what they've seen growing up in a support unit or a and And so when they, or you say, I'm autistic. No, you're not. Yeah. No, you're not. Or everyone's mm. a little bit autistic. Or everyone's a little bit <laughs> autistic, aren't they? Or it's a spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, for me, it's just, it's more of being just like a piece of the puzzle. Like, ah, oh, yeah, I, I understand now a bit more about myself, why I did that. I have to admit, I don't wake up every day and think about it. Like, it's not something yeah. I think about a lot. But the only thing I would say where it's, for me, not the only thing, there's been lots of ways it's been positive, ADHD medication being mm-hmm. one of them. It's made a huge, profound difference in my life, actually, much more so than I anticipated in my sense of calm and my sense of self and my sense of wellness. I guess there's a few things about myself that I always found hard to explain to other people or always felt maybe people were judging me. And I suppose it's just a few like key things about how I, I've i never, ever had any interest in having children. Mm. And I, I think people just can't really get their head around that a lot of the time because it is normal that people want children. And it's hard to ex- even put it into words. It's not that I don't like children. I love children. Yeah, I was going to say, adore (laughs) your niece and nephews. They are the most beautiful and important things in my life. I love working with children. It's just a complete absence of any sense of wanting to have a child Mm. ever. It's just never been in me. I never grew up thinking about having kids. I never went through my 20s thinking I want to have kids. I I just, I don't want children. Yeah. I love being with my niece and nephews. And like, I could adopt a child, like all that. It's just never been this sense of needing to have my own biological child or I don't want to adopt a child either, to be honest, but like it's not in the sense that I don't have this need to nurture, but I do enjoy nurturing and I've never wanted a partner. I've never, ever been interested in a relationship or a partner. And certainly when I was younger, you just think that's just what you do. What you have to do. What you have to do. And if you just try and meet people, maybe you'll find someone you're interested in or just try going on dates or... Maybe you'll form a connection and you just haven't found that person yet. And over the years, people ask you, oh, you got a boyfriend? Are you seeing anyone? And no. And when are you going to find When are you going to find, find someone? someone? When are you going to settle down? But more than that, like people meaning. And when you say to people, I'm not looking, they don't believe you. And so people saying, have you tried online dating? And I'm like, no. It's the natural instinct to think Rachel must want a partner and she must want children and she must want to move out of home. <laughs> I've never wanted those things. It felt uncomfortable to me to try and date people deeply, deeply and profoundly uncomfortable yeah. to want to do that. I don't, it's just fundamentally, I'm so contented on my own. In fact, I need my own space. I think in my thirties, like in people who know me and that it's not something that it surprises them now. And then I think it also gave me, I was always very embarrassed about the fact that I lived at home and I live at home as a choice because I like living at home. I have the financial means. I own my own home. You do. (laughs) And your parents love having you there. (laughs) But I've always not wanted to admit to people that I live at home because I like it, because I don't want to live on my own Mm. and I like my routines and I don't want them to change. So I always have made up excuses to people when they've talked to me. Oh, you're going to move into that place that you're own. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd be like, oh yeah, just going to rent it and then do some renovations and you know, oh, yeah, just a few things have come up, but probably next year I'll move in. Yeah. And now I just say no, because I like living at home and I don't want to. Yes. I'm happy. I yes. like my parents' company. We get on well and my routine, I don't want to be on my own. I don't want to live with other people. And that's okay. This is my happy. Yeah. I am happy and yeah. I have 
my niece and my nephew who I would literally spend every minute of my life with if mm. I could. Yeah. yeah. And people in general, I guess as creatures, as humans, we are creatures of habit, some mm. of us to a different extent than others. Yeah. So that is part of the disconnect between autistic people and non-autistic people is that it's called the double empathy problem. So we can't actually understand why each other think differently and that's uncomfortable and confusing. So <laughs> that's something that's quite true. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more question and I'm going to ask you both a question that I didn't Fabulous. actually write down. But Rach, with you speaking openly about your diagnosis yeah. and it not being something that you necessarily saw coming, what no. advice would you give to somebody who might have gone or be going through the same thing? The diagnosis won't change who you are. Nothing will change except you might accept yourself more mm -hmm. and understand yourself more. The world doesn't suddenly turn to lava. You don't suddenly feel like a freak, quite the opposite. Even if it comes as a shock to you, you're still exactly the same person and you still have the same friends and you still have the same things you like to do and don't do. Hopefully it will bring you some acceptance and peace of just being who you are a little bit more. And give yourself permission not to pretend to other people so much to be what you think they think you should be. Yes. There will be no negatives from getting your diagnosis at all. Great advice, Rach. And it's up to you how you want to share it. And whether you get a formal diagnosis or you self-diagnose, it doesn't matter either. If you want yeah. to share it, you don't want to share it, don't share it. It's not your personality, it's who you are. Yeah. And that's right. actually a really good point and it's because personal. A, a formal diagnosis can be quite financially prohibitive in the autistic community in particular. Self-diagnosis is actually very valid. Absolutely. Mm. Are there any support groups that you guys know or are a part of that you have found helpful? Speaking of radical self-acceptance, someone recommended a group and I was like, I don't need that. That's for autistic people. <laughs> Sarah and I had a great debate on the because I was like, I am so <laughs> offended that my psychologist recommended maybe I might like to go to a group of other autistic. That is just so <laughs> deeply offensive to me. And Sarah was like, yes, you seem very at peace with this. <laughs> I love it. I love so that I that's that, where your mind goes. I know there's groups out there. <laughs> there are a lot. Yeah. What about Sarah? Is there where any you that you're a part of? I am mostly online. There's lots of Facebook groups. A caveat to any sort of online group is looking in the description and checking that they're neurodivergent affirming. So actually being neurodivergent affirming is that we don't complain about our kids' distress impacting on us because while it does, it's distress. Yeah. <laughs> they're not choosing to be yeah. difficult or annoying or overwhelming. So the groups that I'm a part of are all... Autistic-led, I guess. That is the difference because most autistic people are neurodivergent, affirming yeah. inherently because that's who they are. But, yeah, go search through Facebook. You'll find something that works for you. But just, and it's okay if it doesn't. Exactly. Don't jump in the group just yeah. because it's like And if it gives you it. any sort of bad feelings, just get out. Yeah. There's some local psychology practices run groups for, like, there's one that is local that I believe runs group for women who've been recently diagnosed as adults in Yeah, person. cool. That's really cool. Um, so... It is tricky. The, a lot of the facilitated ones um, do 
facilitated cost. ones cost money. Um, but that is something through my business that I'm going to try to do because I think that's really important because that mm. has been something that's made the biggest difference to me. Yeah. And it's not that we need facilitated social interaction. We just literally need to be linked with other people yeah. who are like us. Like so, You don't need someone else there. You need an autistic yeah. person. And yeah. I guess the other thing is I've found about being so open about it is that people come to you. Yes. Because it, a lot of people are sitting back and not telling anyone about their diagnosis yep. and just living their life. And when you do right. tell them, you'll be surprised how many people around you yeah. are very similar. Great advice. Thank you, gals. I've got one question for the both of you. And that is, what would you say to the Sarah and Rach that was getting ready to explore your own personal diagnosis. Sarah, I'll start with you. What would you say to her? I mean, that Sarah had done some processing already, but I guess the reasons that I did it were typical of an autistic woman, whereas I was putting everyone before myself. So I wasn't doing it for myself. I was doing it for my son. And I was like, this is going to be so beneficial for him. I didn't really think about the benefits for me but it has been absolutely life-changing like tangibly with the ADHD medication but also in forgiving myself and just like giving myself grace and not feeling like I had to do everything for everyone else just because I didn't want to upset them yeah that that people pleasing is so ingrained in me and has been forever that it has taken the formal diagnosis. So even just those little daily things. And like now I have noise cancelling headphones and I wear them when I go to the shops. I don't care. Whereas previously I would have been self-conscious about that. So it's validating and it's a relief. I would tell her that she has no idea how beneficial it's going to be. Yeah. Love it. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. No worries. Rach, what would you say to the unknowing Rach? <laughs> <laughs> There's the benefits you're about to experience are not going to just be the right medication finally and a psychiatrist that actually gets being an autistic woman. You're not going to believe how much this is actually going to be beneficial to you because for someone who's felt like a, always inside felt like a weirdo their whole life, this is going to be the first time you're going to feel normal. Mm-hmm. Well said, Rach. A perfectly normal neurodivergent person, not a broken neurotypical. Being recognised as autistic is the first time in my life I've felt actually this is normal because you're an autistic person. This is normal for an autistic person. How do you feel verbalising it? I'm not a crier. Yeah. (laughs) If I was, I'm quite overwhelmed. Yes. I love that you're... I'm just overwhelmed. (laughs) Not emotional at all. I'm not emotional. (laughs) I am overwhelmed. I think I feel very privileged to be here for you doing that, Rach. So thank you. Thanks and for having us. We were so, yes. so excited when yeah. you invited us. Thank you. I have really enjoyed this. Yes. I feel like there is so many more things that we could talk about. Like we've barely scratched the surface, but I really appreciate you guys sharing your knowledge, your expertise, your experience, your personal views, your personal experience. We've uncovered a lot here. If I don't know. Is there anything else you guys would want to say before we wrapped up for anyone listening? I guess like particularly for parents because that's where a lot of my work is and it's an area that I'm really passionate about. You're going to worry, but just rest assured that your little person is going to be exactly who they were meant to be 
which You're is not going to change them at all. They have strengths that you will never even imagine and they will teach you something every single day. Yes. This is going to be the hardest thing, harder than you thought, and your child is going to be so perfect. The world is changing yes. to let your child be who they should be and want to be. Yeah. The world is not the same place it was. And if that means seeking some additional support, that is perfectly Great. okay. Good. And at the same time, a lot of, I mean, this is probably going to raise another can of worms, but because we do get NDIS funding, autism is an automatic diagnosis, so you'll get NDIS for the rest of your life if you need it. The important thing to remember is that kids don't need therapy just because they're autistic. They need therapy if they're having difficulty or if they're distressed or if someone needs to understand them. They don't need it for the sake forever of it. for the sake of it. Yeah. Thank you so much, gals. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Thank you so much, you bloody legends. (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of Yeah The Gals. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe or follow us on Instagram at Yeah The Gals Podcast. And remember, gals, you bloody got this.